You're listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. This week we're continuing our study of the book of Galatians. We're calling Legalism to Liberty. With this week's message, here's Senior Pastor Lance Bourgeois. Well, it happened to me once again a couple of weeks ago. Uh, in my world, it may not surprise you, but there's a conversation killer in my world. And it's that moment when somebody says, well, what do you do for a living? And that's not always met with an overwhelming response. Well, this time it happened. I was going through a drive through getting my morning glass of unsweet iced tea. And as I'm sitting there at the drive through apparently as they're fixing my drink, the person who's working the window is uncomfortable with the awkwardness of us just sitting there. I'm okay with it but they start trying to make this nervous conversation. And so as I'm sitting there, the person says, how are you doing today? I'm fine. Good day? I'm like, it's 7.30. Yeah, sure, it's great. And then they said, what's your plans for the day? I'm going to my office. And then this moment comes. What do you do? I'm a pastor. Now, you would imagine that I just said something terrible They kind of look at me, and then this person says this, you work more than just during your Sunday morning services? (laughs) Maybe y'all think that too. You have no idea how many people think we don't do anything. And so she says, oh, I gave away her gender, sorry. Um, And so this person says to me, well, what do you do? I'm like, well, we meet, we plan, we study, we organize, we put systems in place, we meet with people, we do all kinds of things. We, it's almost like I have a real job. (laughs) I'm not lying, that really happened. What do we do? You know, I came across a study last February, February 2020. Uh, George Barna did this research And in it, it purported what is on the mind of American pastors. Now, some of the list was not appropriate for us. I mean, it's not who we are as a church. But as I read it, they captured some of what we think through. What happens Monday through Thursday in our world? Well, I can tell you what is not. 19% of pastors said what's on their mind is that celebrity pastors are pulling people away from their local church. That's We don't worry about that. But here's where it gets real. 46% of pastors, there's negative perceptions of the church out in the community and in the culture. Maybe you've seen that. What used to be an esteemed thing, the church is now falling into some reputations that aren't always good. 56%, the prosperity gospel teachings, is that there would be this prosperity gospel that says God's number one plan in your life It's for your health and your wealth and for you to just enjoy every aspect of life. That's the prosperity gospel. 56% of our pastors are saying, yeah, that's on my mind because that goes out into our world and our community. How about this? 63% of pastors are saying our poor discipleship models are really having a negative impact in the church and in the life of our followers. We're not teaching people how to walk with Christ. We're not involved. We're not engaged. We're missing the boat. Because that leads us to this, 66% saying the culture shift into the secular age. We are in a post-modern, excuse me, a post-Christian world, 
and what we used to take for granted as biblical literacy and what people agreed on right and wrong, and maybe we had some ideas about all those That's just not our world anymore. What do we do Monday through Thursday? We have to think because this book doesn't change. The message hasn't changed. You know what has changed over and over across time? The methodologies for how we teach it, for how we communicate it. The message doesn't change, but we have got new issues going on in our world that we have to take the truths of this book and apply them to what's going on around us. Yeah, we think through it. You know what we do Monday through Thursday as a pastoral staff? We think through these things, and it gets worse, 72% of American pastors are wrestling with a watered-down gospel teaching. Because this gospel that we have, which translates from good news, this good news of this gospel is what God gave us and entrusted us to pass on to the world. Jesus' Jesus's mission on earth was to what? Seek and save the lost. And you do that through a pure gospel message. And if that's our Lord's mission, to seek and save the lost, then that ought to be our mission. And the moment we start watering down the gospel, which has the capacity to seek and save the lost, then who do we think we are that we can change the good news of his gospel? See, we're not in services. That's what's on our minds. And today, we get the opportunity to talk through what's on Paul's mind because Paul is livid today. I invite you to open up to Galatians chapter 3. If you've ever questioned, was it okay for a Christian to be angry? I think you're going to have your answer in this because God has recorded Paul's anger. This is a fiery message that he's offering today because I think Paul would say the watered-down gospel is going to shipwreck people. Where is the hope if we don't offer them the true gospel We've talked through other ways in the series about ways that people water down the gospel. One of the ones we've talked about is this gospel of sin management, that we would reduce our faith to behavioralism, as if behavioralism in any way could amount to righteousness before God, as if in any way possible our behavioralism could overcome the power of sin or the penalty of sin or eventually one day the presence of sin. Paul is upset. We're going to begin in Galatians chapter 3, verse 1, and it will become very apparent what's on Paul's mind. He writes this, Galatians chapter 3, verse 1, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish that having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected in the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now let's pause and look, because he's got five questions here that he asks them and you can hear his emotion. Twice he calls him foolish in these verses. It's funny, if you look up how to translate that word, that we use the word foolish, the other definitions were, it's unheard of. What you're doing is unheard of. Or it uses this phrase, it's not been thought upon. It's like you turned your brain off. What you're doing, you've turned your brain off. You're not even thinking anymore. My favorite was where he uses this phrase, not within the province of thought. There's this province or state of thought, and you're like over here. 
You've left the realm of reason with what you're doing with this gospel truth. If you just look up one verse to the last verse of chapter 2, you can see where Paul writes, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. That was last week where we ended. We come into this week, and that's where he is. Did Christ die for no purpose? And he says, look, there's this realm of thought. You've left it. You've left it to think that Christ died for no reason. Look, the standard of a rigid adherence to the law and grace, you're trying to marry those two things together, and they don't work that way. They can't work that way. Grace is great. The law was God's standard of righteousness. That's not bad. But saying that we can achieve righteousness through it is the problem. And the moment that we take the rigid adherence to the law and say, let me add some grace to it, guess what happens? It's not grace anymore. Because you can't minimize the impact of having a rigid adherence to the law. That we would reduce it to behavioralism. It doesn't work. Matter of fact, Paul said, who bewitched you? The idea would be this idea that he is, you've been hypnotized. You've been hypnotized by something. Remember those old cartoons and they wave the little watch in front of you and you can become hypnotized? What happened? It's like you've become hypnotized with this way because you're not thinking anymore. Clearly, you can't think. And I got to tell you, what happens to me is I can read in the Old Testament and I can read about Israel and I can have this thing where I'm like, Israel, come on. How did you miss that? Israel, how could you miss that? And I can be really hard on Israel with some of the stuff they did. Come on, you're going to worship a golden calf. Come on. And I can be really hard on the Galatians, and I can say, how could you leave the gospel? You know the answer? I can find that I do it too. There are things in this world that can hypnotize me, and all I would ask is for you to consider what those things are for you. Have you ever thought that maybe life gets so hard and you think, Man, if I just feel like I could make a deal with God, God, if I memorize 15 Bible verses this week, would you make my life a little bit easier? Could you take away some of the adversity? And it's almost like we get that little watch going back and forth, and I can become hypnotized by saying, you know what, I know it's God's grace, and I know that that's what it's calling is for me to grow, but this life is too hard. I've got to take matters into my own hands, and I have to find a way to make my life better. So let me just start making some deals with God. God, how about this? How about I hold the door open for three people today? How about I memorize scripture today? How about I do all these things? Because the adversity is too much. Maybe it's material possession. Lord, I'm so tired of struggling financially. What if I just did this more? If I went to church every time they opened the door, would you just ease my financial burden a little bit? Maybe that's where we are. Maybe it's our physical health. Maybe it's the physical health of a loved one. I tell you, I've watched so many people in the midst of the struggle of physical health or the physical health of a loved one, I've watched them change their theology to accommodate whatever they can do to make life better. And that's exactly what the Galatians have done. And I think Paul's words to him is, who has bewitched you? Who has come into your life and moved you away from the gospel? I wonder if maybe we don't need to ask ourselves if we've been fooled somewhere. And we found ourselves hypnotized because Paul would say, salvation by grace alone. That's it. That's where righteousness comes from. It's not through what we do. He moves from that, and then he asks more pointed questions specifically to them. And there's this growing outreach. If you look down at verse 2, let me reword the question and put it in our terminology. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by works or by faith? 
When you got the Holy Spirit, was it because you believed something or was it because you did something? He really wants to push it. Now, he's not questioning their salvation. I don't think he's questioning that at all. He helped plant this church. He led them to Christ. They were clear on the gospel. That's been said over and over again. But Paul writes it this way in Romans 8. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. I know you're the church. I know he belongs in you because you belong in him. You're believers. And that's the reality of it. You have the Holy Spirit. But how did you get the Holy Spirit? Did you get it because you did some work? Or was it because you believed in him? He carries the same thought in Ephesians 1. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. That is what sealed you. You came to faith and the Holy Spirit came to indwell you as the guarantee, as the deposit, as the down payment for your salvation. What Paul would want you to know and would want me to know is this, you have never lived one moment of the Christian life without the Holy Spirit. That's not ever true. And there are some traditions that will tell you that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is something that comes later. It's something that we experience later in the Christian life. If you were here a couple of weeks ago, Caleb Carmichael taught, and he did a great job talking about the merit badges on the way to uh, getting your Eagle Scout. Let me tell you, in taking that analogy to this, there are no merit badges for you and me to earn to get the Holy Spirit. It's been given to you as a gift. It was given as a down payment for your salvation, which is to come, and it is the seal of your salvation. You are safe. You are you are safe in the Father's arms. That's what he's done for you. Which is why he comes back and says, wait a minute, let's just start with this. What gave you the Holy Spirit? What you did or what you believed? You know what? It couldn't be what you did because they didn't even have the Mosaic Law. This is a Gentile church. They didn't even have the Mosaic Law. They had never been able to practice the Mosaic Law. They come to faith. Paul, Paul leads them to the Lord in the gospel. They come to faith. They never did a work from the Mosaic Law. It wasn't part of who they were. They weren't even, they weren't even conversant in it. For the church, Acts chapter 2, known as the day of Pentecost, the day the Holy Spirit began to indwell believers, that is a celebration for the New Testament church. And something that's offered to you and me. Look at verse 3. He takes that. It's not only the idea, did you receive the Holy Spirit by works or faith? And then he says, how are you going to grow spiritually? Where did you get the Holy Spirit? By works or by faith? And now he says, how will you grow spiritually? Do you grow spiritually by works or by faith? And he begins to walk through this. And he begins with that idea, it was begun in the Spirit. You have never lived a day of your Christian life without the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit if you know Jesus Christ. It began in the Spirit. And all of a sudden what we have is this idea that the Christian life begins with God's grace at the cross as he draws us to himself, but every day after that as we grow in Christ-likeness, in righteousness is an act of faith. It's never been about your behaviors. That's just not part of it. Matter of fact, he goes on and says, matter of fact, it's our flesh. It's our flesh that wants to draw that in because what I want to do is the flesh wants to see where I measure up. 
My flesh wants to see how I measure up with you. And so I start looking at things. I'm like, well, he or she's really respected. He or she enjoys a good reputation. Man, he or she knows a lot of Bible verses. I would love to impress a group of believers by all the scripture I know. And you can generally tell when those people pray, can't you? What ends up happening is we start trying to impress people. John writes in 1 John chapter 2, he says, you know, all that is of this world is lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. I want to feed my ego. I want to feed myself. What I, my eyes see and want, I want to acquire. And none of that is from the Lord. Is it possible that our works can get in the way? Well, let me give you a few things to think about. Is it possible that Bible study does not always draw us closer to the Lord? I think yes. How many times have we entered into Bible study and thought, oh, that's good, because I'm going to write that down, because the next time a family member wants to argue with me, I'm going to let them have it with that little bit of biblical truth. Did that draw us closer to the Lord, or did it draw us into a point where we could win an argument, because we would call that arrogance? Now, let's go a step further. How about listening to Christian music? Does listening to Christian music, is that something that evokes the heart of Christ in you? Maybe. Maybe it does. And by the way, if Bible study draws you closer to the Lord, do it. We're called to do it. What's your attitude about it? Christian music, the same way. I would ask you this. How many people listen to Christmas music that are songs about the incarnation and the gift of Jesus Christ? The whole world listens to our songs. They sing our songs in December. Do I see a movement of righteousness in our world because of it? No. Because you can sing the same songs without your heart being connected to it, and it may not evoke righteousness. Let's go a step further. This may be crazy, but I'm going to say it anyway. If you, in song, in worship, raise your arms, does that mean you're worshiping? Maybe, maybe not. But if it is your authentic posture of your heart before the Lord, then feel free, by all means, we invite you to raise your hands. But what we can't be about is a church that says, let me look spiritual and raise my hands right now. Because everything Paul is saying is, our works do not bring about righteousness because our works may not be driven by the pursuit of righteousness. You want to go a step further? How about giving? Now, I got to tell you, when people come to our church, they ask questions like, man, y'all don't pass plates. I don't even know what you do. Let me tell you, we do not pass plates because we believe that God says if you should give so that your right hand doesn't know what your left hand is doing, then you should be able to give without the person to your right and the person to your left knowing what you're giving. It's between you and the Lord. But can you give in a way that isn't righteous? Well, absolutely. I want power. I want influence. I'm going to give you money. I'll give the church money if they name this after me or if they will take my ideas. Let me tell you, our position on giving, 2 Corinthians chapter 9. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift that you've promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. Paul is changing the system here. And I don't know what system you grew up in, but his thing is, I want you to purpose in your heart. What do you want to give? We're not coming to take money from you. That's not what we're doing. But we want you to be prepared. We want you to make a decision before the Lord. We want you to steward your resources. What do you want to do? Well, how do we do that? Well, Paul gives them a principle in the next verse. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. 
What do you want to do with the stewardship you've been entrusted? It's not to leverage for your power or influence in the church. It's the idea that what do you want to see the Lord do with your financial giving? If you want to, if you want to see him uh, reap, if you want to reap sparingly, then sow sparingly. That makes sense. If you want to reap uh, bountifully, then sow bountifully. That makes sense. And then he says, let me tell you this. Don't give one penny more than you can give cheerfully. God's not trying to take your money from you. The question would be, what do you want to give back to him and say, Lord, this is all I've got. This is what I can do. I want to ask you to use it for your good, for your purposes, that it might work in my life or somebody else's life. But you know what it's not? It's not selfish to say, I want power. I want influence. I want to impress people. Because you can have a whole bunch of Christian behaviors that are driven by righteousness and spiritual maturity, or you can have them that are all about self and how we do it. Here's the thing. When God looks at our heart, he wants to see are our actions aligned with the heart and a posture of our heart to know him. It's not about us, and we make it about us so often. And so the question for you and me is, when God looks at our heart, what does he see about my Bible study, about my arms being raised, about the way I sing Christian music, about the way I steward my resources, and anything else he's entrusted to me? Here's the thing. If you would allow me Here's my definition of worship, and you can pick it apart if you want, but I think worship is any time we sit in the recognition of who God is, who we are, and that out of his compassion, he made a bridge to connect us. And if that's giving, Bible study, songs, or anything else, if we're drawn into the recognition of who he is, who we are, and the bridge he built between us, then I think we enter into a heart of worship that allows every one of those things to be used by him for his good purposes in the world but we can't fall into the trap of thinking that we're bartering with God. Hey, I really made a significant gift this week. I listened to Christian music all week in the car, and therefore, I ought to get whatever I ask for. That's not how it works. Look at his fourth question. Chapter three, I mean, chapter three, verse four. Here's his fourth question. Did you suffer in vain? Did you suffer in vain? That word suffer it can mean persecution, but it doesn't have to mean that. It can just talk about the difficulties, the overall experience of life. Maybe you've recognized this life is hard. Now, it's hard for believer and unbeliever alike, but his question is this, because this life is hard, how do we walk through it? We don't just throw away our faith because life got hard. It's not like we can say, you know what, my faith has made my life hard, therefore let me just throw away my faith and my life would get easy. It doesn't work that way. And I gotta tell you, I don't know if you have this moment or how often you have this moment that I think, I, what has happened to our world? Our world has lost their ever-loving mind on so many different things. And I look at them like, what is happening? And I feel all abandoned. And the moment I feel abandoned, I become scared to speak out. I get scared to think about things or share my thoughts because I don't know where, who's going to cast me out, right? I think what Paul would say is, this life is hard. And the solution isn't to throw away our faith. It's to lean into the Lord. Matter of fact, I think the hardness and the difficulties of this life are the way that God draws unbelievers to himself. And we want to say that having been drawn to him, I'm going to throw it all away? That makes no sense. See why I think he says, you foolish Galatians, what are you doing? It wasn't about this. And this wasn't new information. This is Acts 14. When they preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith 
and saying that through what? Many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. The life on this earth is filled with many tribulations. That's why we come together to encourage one another. What the body of Christ has is this, that the world doesn't. We can come together for encouragement. Hey, God's at work. He's doing something. I don't know what he's doing, but he's at work, and he's promised good, and he's going to do something. All of us have suffered, all of us. But that probably would have happened anyway. Maybe our faith has added to it. Some of you have lost family members. You've lost relationships. You've lost business partners. You've lost finances, uh, finances in the midst of it. I don't know what it is. But every one of us has paid a price for the tribulations of this earth. But Paul's question would be this. Sure, you could walk away from this gospel of grace, and the persecution may go away, but what have you gained? What have you gained? You threw it all away, you want to return to works? Works couldn't get you there anyway. Why would you go back to that? And then in verse 5, you see his fifth question. Does God perform miracles by works or faith? It was, did you get the Holy Spirit by works or faith? Do you grow by works or faith? Did you suffer in vain? And then he comes back and says, does God do miracles by work or faith? How does he do it? Let me tell you, supernatural works were never the result of obeying the law. This is earlier in the same chapter where Luke writes this. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth. He had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith, not works, faith, to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. That guy didn't start walking because somebody had memorized a bunch of verses or had raised their hands during worship. It was because there was an active faith alive in that person. And that faith brought about healing. We've all seen God do incredible things. We may not have acknowledged it, but God's done incredible things in front of all of our eyes. I shared with you guys a few weeks ago about a relationship with somebody that talked about having a top 10 most unsavable list. And that over the years, as they were praying for those people, they started marking them off one by one by one. Uh, last year, my son, who is a junior in college, was invited to serve on the leadership team in their college ministry. And last October, as we were talking, and I talked about that list, and he was getting involved in sharing his faith and uh, in seeing God do some things, I told him that story. I did not know that he did this. He called me a couple of weeks ago, and he was so excited. And I go, Talk to me about what's going on. He goes, Dad, last October, you told me about that guy that made the top 10 most unsavable list. And I said, yeah, I remember that. And he goes, well, I made one. And I said, you did? He goes, yeah, I made one. And I've been praying for those guys all the time. And I said, that's awesome. He goes, well, let me tell you about it, Dad. One of those guys has renewed his faith, and I've now gotten four of them to come to our college ministry events where they're hearing the gospel. And I thought, you know, it wasn't, how many attempts he made to share the gospel. It wasn't how many verses he memorized. It wasn't whether he did this or that or how much money he gave. It was taking God at his word that God came to seek and save the lost and he joined the Lord in that purpose and started praying for God to work. And my son is watching God do things. Who doesn't want that? And if we find ourselves bartering with God, well, God, I'm gonna do this so that you owe me something, and that's why Paul is so upset. You guys have left, here's thought, here's the province of thought, you've left it, and you're over here. And he's watching God do big things. So I'd ask you again, 
Who's on your list? Who are you desperate to see God work in their life? And let's start praying about it because it's gonna be the prayer of faith that will bring about the righteousness of God in your own life and it will bring about fruit. That's who he is and that's what he does. He hammers them with five questions and then he says, let's talk about Abraham. Let's talk about Abraham. Look down with me if you would at chapter three, verse six. He picks up this thought. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it's those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing God, that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you all the nations shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now, I don't want to diminish Moses or the Mosaic law at all. It's interesting. The Galatian church is coming at Paul and the other believers and saying, you've got to elevate the Mosaic law. You've got to elevate the Mosaic law. We're going all the way back to Moses. You know what Paul says? Let's go back further. Let's go back further than Moses. Let's go back to Abraham, the father, the patriarch of our people. Let's go before Moses because Abraham never had the Mosaic law. Are you with me on that? That came after him. But what we find is this verse where we read in Genesis uh, 15, and Abraham believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. He believed. It wasn't anything that he did. Matter of fact, part of what they're saying, telling the Galatian church is circumcision is so important. This was Genesis 15. Abraham didn't get circumcised till Genesis 17. And yet we already see him being declared righteous because of what he did? No, but because of what he believed. It's what he believed that set him apart for his purposes. Abraham had no law to follow. And when we come back and we start looking at what's going on in this passage and we see all these nations are gonna be blessed through Abraham. How? Well, that was back when it was originally stated. That's Genesis 12. Now, the Lord said to Abram, he gets his name changed. This is Abraham. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I want you to pack up and leave. You're leaving everything behind, Abraham, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All of a sudden, the promise goes far and beyond what Abraham could have ever seen because it's no longer just a physical lineage. It's going to be a spiritual lineage. Here's the thing. In this story, I'm going to make you a great nation, but they don't have any children. So where is that going to begin? We're told as the story goes on that Sarah was past childbearing years. What are we going to do? How are we going to have, we, we, we can't start a nation. We don't even have a child. And it begins to move on. And then all of a sudden, we're told that after her, she was past childbearing years, God says, now's the time. And there's that great question in there. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? And they're entrusted with a son. And then God says, I want you to go sacrifice the son, Abraham. And you know what Abraham doesn't do? Abraham doesn't rationalize his sin. No, I'm not doing that. That makes no sense, God. Because God doesn't only work when things make sense. He calls us to radical belief and trust. You want to talk about radical belief and trust, say that you're going to be a great nation and you have no children in your past childbearing years, but believing. Then have a child and have God say, I want you to go sacrifice him. And then say, what am I going to do? Well, if God can wake up a dead womb, he can wake up a dead child. And when 
Abraham goes to the top of the mountain, and we're told, and it's real clear in the vocabulary, that he pulls up the knife to sacrifice his son. It's said in the past tense. In his mind, when he raised his knife, there was no hint of, I'm not going to follow through. He had made the decision, and when he raised that knife, it was as good as over, and God stopped him. But that same belief that said, that took it beyond all sensibilities, God said we would be a great nation. I trust that he's going to do it. I trust that he will follow through. And even if I have to sacrifice my son, I don't know how he's going to do it. That's not my, my story to figure out. It's the Lord's to fix, and he said he was going to do it, and I trust him. That's how we walk. That's the walk of faith. And all of a sudden, he begins living it. And I think, how hard is it to live out our faith? Because I, I'd like to say I've been Abraham walking up the mountain. I don't know that I would have. You know why I can say that? It's because I think of all the other things he's called me to that are difficult. What's it like for me to personally forgive and extend grace to people who have hurt me? It's hard. It's hard. But my belief, my faith and my belief shape my actions. That's what it's always supposed to be. How about in marriage? How do I love Ellen as Christ loves the church? How do I nourish her and cherish her when it's difficult? How does she honor and respect me when it's difficult? You recognize we don't just get to throw away our actions because our belief is struggling or only when it makes sense. It doesn't work that way. How about parenting? Not exasperating our children. If we're real honest, sometimes it's fun to exasperate our children. But God says not to do it. And so how do I step into that in a way that would honor my children? Children, you're not getting off the hook either. What does it look like to obey and respect your parents even when they don't feel respectable? We don't get to throw away our faith just because it's hard. That's never been part of it. Employees, doing your work is under the Lord, even if you're the only one. Employer, treating your employees with respect and justice, even if nobody else in the world does. Our faith is always intended to drive our actions. It was designed to be that way because as it does, if you look at verse nine, all of a sudden what we see is Abraham's lineage. While it gave birth to a people who are Jewish, it gave birth to a spiritual lineage of faith that is based on God's provision and not our human accomplishment. We don't enter into that family by what we do. We enter into it by what we believe. And that's part of the system, which is how Abraham became a model for every generation throughout all time. That's the gift of faith. Having, I think, shut them down, he then says, and by the way, let's look at who Jesus is. Look with me at verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming the curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. So then Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. His argument says, attempting to earn righteousness through the law will require you to live by the law. And requiring you to live by the law requires you to live by every aspect of the law in perfection, every moment of every day. That's why the system was broken. That's why the system needed a new way. You know, the Olympics are coming up. Ellen and I love watching the Olympics. We stay up too late. We watch all day. We talk. We try to avoid newspapers so we don't know who won. But one of the things that happens 
in those Olympics is we love watching the gymnastics. Men, women, we, we love, love gymnastics. And there's always the judges, and they always, you know, they keep meticulous scores. Now, I would tell you, Ellen may say she's different. For me, if I see somebody fall, I get it. If they step out of bounds, I get it. If there's some minor deduction because their toe wasn't pointed right, I'm never going to see it. I'd give way more tens than any uh, gymnastics judge ever would, okay? The scrutiny, because they know what they're doing. They know who they are, and they know what they're looking for. Now, I want to take that to our faith for a minute. Imagine the holy and righteous judge, God, watching you and I in our failed attempts to live the law. And we're not just talking about when we fall out of bounds, when our toe's not pointed right. And God looks at us with that level of scrutiny because he's holy and righteous. He sees it all, not just your bad days, even the days you think are good days. He still sees the deductions. Here's what's amazing. Aren't you glad you don't live under that scrutiny? Because if you want to live under the law, that's what you're inviting. But two, it's not only that. When he judges you, he sees a 10 because he sees you clothed in Christ. And that's what Christ did for you and me on the cross. You want to go a step further, it's also the reality that Jesus says, that deduction, give it to me, I'll pay for that on the cross. That's the gospel message. We don't have to live according to this. And we want to, well, it was a bad day. If you live under the law, you can't have bad days. They're not allowed. Cursed is everyone who hangs on that tree because he says, if you want to take a legalistic adherence to the, to the law and try to do this with our faith, it doesn't work. No one could live by the law. No one is righteous. Here's the thing. Why did Jesus set it up this way? Well, you may be familiar with John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And we're like, right on, that's good. Nobody wants to perish. We don't want that. We want a savior. So why would you send him? if that's what happened. Well, the next two verses tell us, God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world. That's not the purpose for Jesus coming. But in order that the world might be saved through him, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. This world was nothing but condemnation. There was not salvation apart from Messiah. It wasn't that Jesus came and brought condemnation. Condemnation was our lot in life until Jesus came and we needed a savior and he came that you and I might have eternal life. And he kept the law perfectly. He kept it perfectly. You know, Spurgeon said it this way when looking at the cross. He said, on the cross, we see sin fully punished in Jesus, and we see sin fully pardoned for us. That's the gospel message, because there's hope. What's the hope? Let me tell you. I can tell you today whether or not you're going to... Uh, whether or not you have eternal life. John told us, this is the testimony. And he bottom lines it forth. God gave us eternal life. This life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. It's that simple. You have the son, you have eternal life. You do not have the son, you do not have eternal life. That's the gospel. There's no salvation apart from him. Jesus Christ, the son of God, came, took on flesh. He lived up to the scrutiny of the judge. He never sinned. He never had a bad day. There wasn't even a technical deduction. So he goes to the cross to pay a wage or a penalty that wasn't his to pay. He could pay it for you or me. But because he conquered death, he could pay it for everybody. And he walked out of that grave on day three, offering you and me eternal life, 
on the basis of who he is, what he did, and not because of who we are. Because we are riddled with deductions. That's the gospel message. It's not just that, but John tells us in the next verse, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. Not hope for, not wish, not think about, not consider, not wrestle with, not be worried that you don't. I write these things in order that you may know that you have eternal life. That's the gospel message. It's not for you to live out of fear. It's not for you to live out of uncertainty. It's for you to rest in the fact of the finished work of Christ on the cross that we're free to go live this life and what he calls us to do. And all those things, a Bible study, and if you want to raise your arms uh, to sing and, and to sing and to steward your resources, then you do that as an act of love with a posture of a heart for worship that is built on the idea of who God is, who we are, and the bridge of compassion he built between us. And we have the freedom and the privilege of doing that. But it's not tied to our salvation, and it is not tied to our righteousness. But it is the Christian life. Because all of a sudden, he's writing to this Gentile church, and if you look at verse 14, he tells us, here's two purposes for why God did this. One, it allowed the Gentile to be brought into the spiritual lineage lineage of Abraham. It was the only way. It was the only way. And it was in order for believers to receive the promised Holy Spirit. Thank heavens for that gift. In case we've missed it through all the other passages, here's Peter's attempt. For Christ also suffered once for sins that the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. It's clear over and over and over again. And the fear is what? I don't know about living in grace. That scares me. I like to kind of take matters into my own hands. You can't take this in your own hands. Well, I want to contribute. I want to know that I carried my fair share. You can't carry your fair share. We throw ourselves at the foot of the cross in what Jesus Christ accomplished. You've been listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. You can join us for worship Sunday mornings at our campus on Stone Lake Drive in Wichita Falls. You can also hear each week's message Sunday mornings on 89.5 FM KMOC. Listen to our podcast online anytime at gracechurch.com or find us in the Apple Podcast directory. From all of us at Grace Church, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.